Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is The Morning Shift. Mayor Lori Lightfoot marks her first 100 days in office this week, and it's been a busy few months for the first-time office holder. She delivered on ethics reform, she's curbed aldermanic prerogative, passed a bill on predictable work schedules, and faced off with political opponents in City Hall. Some of the city have given her a hearty thumbs up, some have expressed cautious concern, and others have accused her of, quote, business-as-usual politics. For some inside views of the first 100 days, we turn to three people deeply involved in the process of getting the new administration up and running. Andy Kang is the co-chair of the Good Governance Transition Committee. He was charged with identifying and rooting out corruption, increasing transparency, and increasing racial equity in city government and services. Nikita Brar is co-chair of the Education Transition Committee. That group looked at the underlying causes of and solutions for the racial inequity that's embedded in the school system. And Angelique Power is one of the overall transition team co-chairs. She and her team made sure that all 10 transition teams did their work with an eye to the core values of transparency, accountability, diversity, inclusion, and equity. Power sees a lot of wins in this first 100 days. I think some of the major wins are creation of the Office of Equity and Racial Justice, the first time for the city of Chicago, bringing back a housing commissioner, which affordable housing is a huge thing for Chicago, and even just sort of her way of being. Um, We've been pulled into meetings, not just in the philanthropic sector, but we've been pulled into meetings about the cannabis industry and how we achieve economic equity, led by Samir Mayankar. So I think a dream team, a new way of approaching things so that you're not being talked at, uh, pitch to, but you're actually being brought in in the formation of policy, that's different, and that's a win. Nikita, what about for you? Where have you seen successes? Looking at the way that the past administration had functioned, I want to echo Angelique's thoughts that it's a different way of functioning to say, let's actually go to the community. I want to, you know, talk about the casino, for example. Um, The mayor owned that the way it was rolled out was not the way it should have been rolled out and then said, let's actually have a a community survey. Let's have some feedback from people on where this casino should be if it should exist, right? In many ways, the last hundred days or the first hundred days was about responding to immediate crises from the past administration. And I'm excited to see what the Life Administration can put forward in terms of progressive revenue when we go into the budget season. Now, Andy, as you mentioned, you had a strong focus on ethics reforms, lots of movement in that area for Mayor Lightfoot in these first 100 days. That's right. I mean, I would say this is probably the area that uh, the mayor has uh, delivered on the most in the first 100 days. Um, On the very first day, uh, signing the executive order uh, around uh, aldermatic privilege, uh, licensing and permitting uh, being the focus there but also the ethics reform package, uh, expanding the powers of the Office of Inspector General to uh, be able to actually investigate city council, uh, which is, uh, I think we all agree, a a critical step in rooting out corruption. I think despite those um, successes, uh, there's still a huge amount of work. We don't want the narrative to be like great hundred days where we're all done here, folks. I think even the mayor's team recognizes we have a huge, huge set of challenges ahead of us. And uh, these are good first steps, but I I would say that um, what I've seen 
work out the best uh, in, in some in numerous number of these areas is when the mayor's team and the mayor uh, herself engages and works with organizations like uh, whether it's around the Fair Work Week ordinance and the Chicago Federation of Labor or even uh, the uh, package of reforms around city fees and fines and uh, debt collection, uh, which uh, all came out of uh, the recommendations of the citywide task force by city clerk Anna Valencia, but also amazing groups like Kofi and the Chicago Jobs Council. Uh, when the mayor's team engages, as Angelique says, and works with community groups that are deeply invested in some of these challenges, uh, we're likely to see better and more positive results. Nikita, how effective has that collaboration been so far between the mayor's office and, and some of these transition teams? Um, I think that the transition team's work was really to lay some blueprints and to say, here's how we would uh, reimagine Chicago if we could. Um, I think that what's most interesting is to see how these town halls that are coming up, the budget town halls, how they will um, explicitly seek out the input of young people, of uh, organizers who have been on the grassroots level, really fighting for a just and equitable city. It's a remarkable time in Chicago because for the first time in a very long time, we have a common vision. I think what is our challenge and our responsibility in this time is to figure out how to work together um, to accomplish that vision. Angelique, how, how happy have you been with how collaboration has worked between the mayor's office and your groups? Um, you know, I, I hinted at this earlier, but in past administrations, you were brought in sort of at the end. You were brought in to hear a speech before it was given. You would offer feedback that just sort of fell on deaf ears. So in many ways, this administration is inheriting not just a budget deficit, but a trust deficit. And so 100 days ain't enough to to fill that. Um, But I think that uh, having such authentic people on the fifth floor, having open dialogue around policy development, Hearing from the mayor, I mean, a a part of the 100 days is us learning her and her way of being as much as we are learning about, as she is learning about how to do this job. There are big challenges ahead. And so really all that she can do in this first 100 days is to say, I'm the same person I was when I campaigned. And she's done that. So now when the budget comes, that's when we're really going to see, is there teeth there? Is there something behind this office of, of... equity and racial justice. It needs to be funded. It needs to be staffed. We're in a hiring freeze in a moment where, honestly, she has to staff up in some places. So how does philanthropy and other and other sectors step in to support her so that she can achieve the things that she's she wants to achieve? And we talked to Candace Moore on the show a few weeks back, and, and Andy, she talked about how important it was to make sure equity was part of the DNA of every department in the city. But as you just said, Angelique, we're facing hiring freeze right now. We know the city is facing what sounds like it's going to be close to a billion dollars, a billion dollar hole to fill. So how heavy of a lift is that going to be for the mayor when she has these competing uh, interests and concerns when it just comes to the dollars? We're going to have to have, as a city, some tough conversations, right? And, uh, you know, to Candace's point that you raised, uh, you know, the racism that our city has uh, endured, in, in particular on the south and west sides for, for decades, uh, doesn't get undone overnight. And I think 
the conversation we're going to have to have is we don't want folks to feel guilty about this, but we want all Chicagoans to feel responsible. And that means uh, those individuals that have done well over the last few decades, whether they be large corporations or people of significant means, uh, asking the hard question about are they willing to make uh, those tough sacrifices on behalf of the city so that can, we really can address these issues. And if I might, uh, I think... Uh, a related tough subject will be how do we decriminalize our public safety policies? And I think this is a, a very tricky and obviously um, uh, it's riddled with a lot of political consequences. But uh, what we know is that policing alone, even the most effectively trained police, are not going to fix the street violence issue, right? It's the disinvestment. It's the neglect. Um, it's the loss of hope uh, in so many young individuals in our city. And so I think we do need to make sure that uh, we're not just doubling down on policies that have failed in the past, but that we're really looking at things about the gang database and how it's used uh, and how we criminalize individuals, such as the, the, the exceptions to the Welcoming City Ordinance, uh, which allow our police to cooperate with ICE and the Trump administration. I want to turn to you, Nikita, to hear a little bit more about communication and transparency through this transition and how that's been working. What we'll see in the upcoming you know, next 100 days, if we will, um, is that communication will be decentralized. And we want to see that. With greater transparency and accountability comes the responsibility for community voices to uh, be partners to the reform of the city, right? Um, so our group, Chicago United for Equity, is working with grassroots organizers who have been pushing for uh, tax increment financing reform, TIF reform. Really, um, the question that pulled at folks was, is this the right way to do things? when the 78 and Lincoln Yards came up. And so now we're launching a racial equity impact assessment process. Um, and that's going to be something that we launch in October, right as the budget season is heating up, to say, well, where is one of every $3 that's collected from our tax revenues going? Why are those funds locked away from the rest of our city's budget? And if we believe that racial equity is the goal, are we investing these dollars in the communities that, frankly, we have a responsibility to and we have underserved for so many generations? Angelica, around community and transparency in these first 100 days, how has that been working for you? I feel like there have been moments where you see the real Mayor Lightfoot and whether that comes through because she didn't realize that the mic was on or she engages in conversations in progress, uh, tweets from Ivanka or even like going and being on Stephen Colbert and things like that and then always just being in front of the press and engaging with them. I feel like we're getting a sense of who Mayor Lightfoot is. And while there's always, you know, there's going to always be transitions in communication offices and things like that, what's come through to me loud and clear is that there's something about her that really exemplifies Chicago and Chicagoans. There's a bare-knuckled grit you know, she doesn't suffer fools. The main takeaway I have for the first 100 days is she is real and she's authentic. And so regardless of who her mouthpiece is, I think that we can look forward to her sharing off mic moments with us all the time, which I think as Chicagoans, we appreciate. That's Angelique Power, president of the Field Foundation. Also with us this morning, Nikita Brar, executive director of Chicago United for Equity, and Andy Kang, the executive director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice. Thanks, everybody, for stopping by. Thank you. Thank you. There's too many vacant lots. That's driving the people away from the community that they was born and raised in. Who want to live on a block with three to four houses that's up and running and the rest of them 
a bandit, and the rest of the block is vacant lots. Who want to live on a block like that? I don't. That's the voice of Carl Mables, an Inglewood resident on the 6400 block of South Honoré Street, where 10 homes have been demolished since 2008. Mables was profiled in a recent Chicago Sun-Times story titled, Why Tearing Down Inglewood to Save It Hasn't Worked. As Sun-Times reporter Manny Ramos learned, nearly 1,700 buildings were torn down in Inglewood and West Inglewood in roughly the last decade. Only one neighborhood, West Town, had more teardowns, but in West Town, New buildings are going up in their place. Manny Ramos joins me now to talk through his reporting. Also with us in studio are two leaders in the neighborhood who have seen this trend up close. Aisha Butler is executive director of RAGE. That's the Resident Association of Greater Inglewood. And Cecile DeMello is the Inglewood Quality of Life Plan Program Manager at Teamwork Inglewood. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, Manny, why have so many buildings in Inglewood been torn down in recent years? What are some of the factors driving this? Yeah, I think um, it's a byproduct of the the housing crisis that happened. Uh, many homes in Inglewood and West Inglewood happened to fall into foreclosure, just like in any other community across the city during that time period. Um, but it seems like there's been some difficulties trying to obtain economic development, um, which has you know caused that issue to fester further. Um, so the city's overall, they, they say their overall effort to eliminate quote-unquote blight um, is to tear down some of these abandoned buildings that, that are left there unattended for um, for a certain time. Um, their argument, of course, is that abandoned buildings lead to crime or perception of crime um, and also can lower household um, values as well. Um, but the mass amount of demolitions that have taken place there draws into question if that is really an effective model. And when we look at the demolitions, how much of this is city-owned property? Um, so about almost three quarters um, in Inglewood and West Inglewood um, were city-owned property, 74%. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's just a large swath of, of, of lots that have been developing there in comparisons to any other community in the city. Cecilia Nisha, in his reporting, as we said, many found that nearly 1,700 buildings were torn down in Inglewood and West Inglewood. So those are the numbers. But I want you to tell us what that makes a neighborhood feel like, Aisha. I know for me, I experienced it firsthand on my block. I bought my home in 2002, and um, seven homes went down. It's an isolated feeling. Um, It's a feeling of hopelessness. I also have a feeling of opportunity when you see these vacant plots of land that this is opportunity to build and rebuild. Um, But, yeah, I've seen some of the structures that were in horrible condition that was crime-infested that homicides happened at, and those homes went down. But it did happen very rapidly, um, uh, so much so you you can't really take it in. You just look around one day, and it's three people on the block. We have a little bit more control because of that, but at the same time, we don't have any neighbors. Mm-hmm. And so that feeling of a block club is obsolete. That feeling of your new neighbor move in and you want to bring them some pie or cookies, is it's gone. So um, I think what we have tried to do is just repurpose those spaces to be a place for us to connect because we no longer have the neighbors on the block. Cecilia, I want to focus in on something Aisha just said. She said there's opportunity 
But what I'm hearing from Manny is that it's opportunity that's not being taken advantage of. Talk about that. One of the things about uh, the article um, talks about the recent time span of uh, depopulation and foreclosure. But the historical piece around Inglewood is that there's always been an issue of financial institutions taking advantage of the families in that community. And it's never really had the traditional um, home property value increase like many other communities have. Um, I think nationally this community sticks out of having, you know, gone through a lot and trying to maintain homes or to have the American dream for your home. So when we talk about opportunity, a lot of families have tried to stay in the community, even though majority of the mortgages in the community are underwater. Um, There's not a lot of equity. You can't refinance like you can. And then you also have all of these vacant lots that, you know, impact your property value. And I think one of the things that Aisha's work and some of the work that's been happening in the community points to is also calling out how we can get some more incentives and some more programs to really elevate planning in the community. The market is not going to solve itself in Inglewood, and and the residents in that community didn't do this to themselves. We need some support to be able to turn the opportunities into an equitable opportunity for the current renters to be able to take advantage and be homeowners with some of the homes that are, are available. And also, what does new housing look like that includes the residents of the community to be able to have access to the American home buying experience. Manny, what, if anything, has the Lightfoot administration done to address the problem of this high number of vacant lots in Inglewood? She did implement a new $250,000 plan to clean and beautify 50 lots in North Lawndale, Woodlawn, and Inglewood. That's definitely a step in the right direction. But that type of work has been done for years. I mean, you have RAGE, you have Teamwork yeah. Inglewood, you have I Grow Chicago, you have all of these groups within Inglewood that have been working and trying to reclaim these vacant lots and beautify them in every way, right? Um, so, I mean, this is a great approach from the mayor, the administration, but I mean, more needs to be done than just that, I think. Aisha? We started an initiative last year called Buy the Block um, because of this opportunity of these homes that are here as well as the vacant land for a dollar. Um, and we're really trying to incentivize and figure out a way that we can work with our, our local officials to get our current renters or even individuals who are interested in home buying to come into Inglewood. Um, there are some programs like the Micro Market Recovery Program that gives a $15,000 down payment assistance. So we have been really pushing this to make sure that the current people in our community really look at our, our housing market, which is which is a little upsetting, but it also is an opportunity to take advantage of home ownership. Um, we're in the process now of actually doing a documentary called The Color Tax that talks about some of the contract buying that affected us in the 50s that really has what you've seen today in the Sun, from the article of the Sun-Times spilling out to our generations today. So it's efforts, but we do need a little bit more, um, as I said when I was on the Good Governance Committee of Lightfoot, a very, very targeted and authentic way of planning what we're going to do in Inglewood. Um, I've had some folks say they're, they're doing like they did in Detroit, where they have cleansed out the middle part of the area and only had houses on the outer part of the area. And I pray that that's not what's going to happen there because it is some people who are ch- extremely interested in investing in Inglewood, purchasing in Inglewood, and renovating some of the homes that are there. And so I started even a development company that's doing it, you know, one house at a time. But I need more mission-based developers who are not trying to 
get a whole profit off a community that's basically been taken advantage of. Cecile, we had you on the show before Lori Lightfoot took office. And and one thing you talked about that we haven't mentioned here is how workforce development and wraparound services need to go hand in hand with giving people access to to housing. Talk about that. The article talks about the median income in the community around $30,000. And so when you talk about how can you make a homeowner um, that's uh, making $30,000 be able to access a home. And to Aisha's point, there is an opportunity in that way where we can be able to package some incentives to allow for a pipeline for current residents that may not be making um, a, you know, a high wage, could be able to get access to some of the properties before you know, uh, property value gets to speculate to a point that these families can't have access to it. And, you know, but that also needs cooperation from financial institutions. In addition to a plan where we start to identify more local workforce development opportunities, more companies that can provide manufacturing that are going to hire folks from our residents in large numbers so that their medium income can increase. But there is something to be said about being able to provide housing for those families that are making $30,000 a year by being able to think about what's our current housing stock and how we can provide housing support for them, similar to the MMRP um, that Aisha brought up. But one of the things that has been a barrier is that the housing stock has been so behind because there wasn't that natural flow of repurposing or refinancing that people need a lot of help to be able to renovate some of these homes. And that's where I think, um, to the point about, you know, what we can expect from the Life uh, Administration is perhaps thinking about how we can get support and rehab some of these homes so that families could either maybe get a grant to fix up the home mm-hmm. and then be able to live in it when it's not happening on its own currently. That's right. Well, as we wrap up here, I just want to point out that there are many bright spots in Inglewood uh, yes. these days. Speaking of workforce development, Asia, you just held your annual <laughs> job fair last week, brought yes. out hundreds of residents. Yes. Quickly tell us about that. Yeah, so this was an initiative that started about three years ago um, in a collaboration with the Public Safety Task Force of the Inglewood Quality of Life and also our Jobs and Economic Task Force. And I was really listening to the people on the block who said, you know, we want jobs and we just don't know where to go. And sometimes they have barriers, you know, that sometimes it's their records need to be expunged. Sometimes they need transportation. Sometimes they need child care. So we really wanted to eliminate all of those barriers and go to a block that was considered one of the hot spots in Inglewood and bring over 30 employers to that block, as well as resources and professional clothing and resume writing. Um, and it was highly successful. <laughs> and now we're being asked to do it on 10 other blocks, which that's I a good know. problem to have. <laughs> it is a good problem to have. But it also shows that people are ready to work. And when we talk about trying to really bounce back with our housing market, it is people ready to to work, to have a home, and still raise their families. Both me and Cecile are raising raise our families in Inglewood, and we choose to be in Inglewood. And we know from our circles that is it's a lot of us like that. It's just the help and incentives that we need to make that happen. Well, another bright spot, the nonprofit iGrow Chicago has taken a house slated for demolition and transformed it into what they're calling a peace campus, peace campus yeah. which provides a really amazing number of resources for the neighborhood. Let's listen. People come in for IDs all the time. People come in for bus cards. We like to say that $1 saves a life because $1 can buy us 
are bus cards. Anything from therapy and real mental health. Also, yoga. We have prenatal yoga available and postnatal. It can be something just one-on-one counseling, creative expression. I think with the development of these houses, with this nature park, with the basketball court, I mean, it's all tied into one because these are things that this community and um, similar communities around this city have never seen. That was Peace Coleman and Aaron Vogel from iGrow Chicago. So, Cecile, same question to you. What's good in Inglewood these days? Oh, I um, have been having a great time, especially now that I have been putting, getting ready to get my kids into school for mm-hmm. the fall, right? Uh-huh. Um, two of my children, I have three, but two of them are in schools in the Inglewood community, um, getting the, the middle one soon. But we have a lot of different sports programming that happens in the community, a lot of pride in our parks. And you can go into one of our parks and really have a great family day, especially with some of the events that people put on. Rage does an amazing so for Saturday. Hamilton Park is this August Saturday. August 31st, back to school, <laughs> back to school. Yes. Um, and one of the things that's happening in Inglewood is there's a network of people all working together. So anywhere from the grocery store to a day to the park to things that happen on a block that may not be the best, we're all talking to each other and problem solving together. And, you know, that's a feeling like when I, when I had my first child, I wanted to live in a community where I had a safety network and I had a network of people who were looking out for my family. I have that in this neighborhood and I can't replace that with anything and so we want to build on that that synergy of of being able to create a healthy strong community and um, we just need some support because we're we're bumping against the things that we didn't create but we're working through them and we can do more um, when we're all on the same page especially when it comes to the housing crisis. That's Cecile DeMello from Teamwork Inglewood. Also with us was Asia Butler of Resident Association of Greater Inglewood and Chicago Sun-Times reporter Manny Ramos. And that's it for today's Morning Shift. If you want to hear more about the people working to make Chicago's neighborhoods a better place for everyone, just subscribe to this podcast or tell your smart speaker to play the Morning Shift podcast. Until next time, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd Up podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd Up wherever you get your podcasts.